Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. Action Replay. And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. Replayed Action. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Announcement! Announcement! Before we dive into our episode this week, we just wanted to direct your attention to a couple of things that we're doing in order to broaden the scope of our podcast. Firstly, we have a YouTube channel that is being populated with videos all the time, such things as Hard Drop, a mini-series that Chris is making looking at some of the niche Tetris-alike games, the Hour 3 Cents approved videos celebrating the games that are featured on all three of our lists, like Fantasy Life, and we're gearing up a Worms Armageddon one to follow soon, and we've also uploaded our first streaming video there as well, after me and Chris tackled Streets of Rage 4 in co-op last week, Ooh, and that is filled with some typically inane and silly commentary from us as well so if you want to check those out and i assure you you do well for one it's the last chance to see me with hair since i've shaved my head since then oh you're a baldman aren't you i am jonathan baldman so head on over to youtube search for our three cents and please subscribe to our channel we also have a Patreon page where avid fans can pledge their support to the podcast in exchange for some delightful perks, such as access to exclusive deleted scenes and outtakes, full bonus episodes, custom artwork, social media shoutouts, even the chance to record an episode with us. So if you'd like to put a little bit in to get a lot more out of the podcast, then head over to patreon.com forward slash our three cents and please pledge away. So, this week, we have our number 39s. Oh, but dear. But before we do that, it is time to return to the quiz. And <laughs> the scores are closer than they've been in a while, thanks to Minty's double-pointed <laughs> victory last yeah, week. Yeah, it was me. I got it. It is 31 me. to 29 in favour of Chris. I got a message from Tom this morning saying he was disappointed that I'd let my lead slip. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see if you can bring it back with this one. Please. The Covenant... Our fictional military Halo. alien Halo. races. Oh, 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 Minty is in there. Oh, the yes. Fuck it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you won't be able to see this, but I'm dabbing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. It's 31 points to 30. Minty is only one point behind now. This has been a fantastic comeback. Well done, Minty. <sighs> Finally, treble figures. Uh, yep. <laughs> so, what have we been playing this week? Minty, what have you been playing? Thanks for asking. You're welcome. I'm playing a game that I haven't played since we started this podcast. Mm. Interesting. Mm. I'm playing Labyrinth of Refrain again. Oh, okay. Oh, lovely. Yes, I'm... With the bees. With the bees. There was a big bee. <laughs> there was a boss, oh. there was a big bee. <laughs> yes. There... Yes, I beat that boss today. And already you deleted it from your mind. <laughs> I beat the big B today, so now I'm in the the three umbral towers, just looking for stuff. I don't know what. Mm. I gave a a handsome man a bloody mushroom and a piece of white bamboo. We'll see what happens with that. Because I haven't played it for about, well, it must be about a year and a half now. I'm pretty much back to square one with not knowing what on earth I'm doing at all. (laughs) It's near insurmountable, the amount of stuff you have to do in the menuing and setting your teams together. But I think I'm cracking it. It's good. It is good. Good. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I've been playing just so many things this week. Always. 
You're just a machine I know. under lockdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's my lockdown unemployment. I don't know if I mentioned last week that I finally finished Monster Boy in the Cursed Kingdom. I don't know if you did. I'm not sure if I did. I was probably talking about my turnips. <laughs> but uh, Monster Boy was great. It's um, it's really big game, like surprisingly big. And perhaps a, a little too long towards the end. I did start to sort of look forward to finishing it and being able to put it down. Mainly because it was, it, was, it was really quite tough, <laughs> I must say. But, I mean, all in all, very impressed. Had a great time. Also finished Tomb Raider Anniversary, which was really good fun. It was nice to play through that again. Obviously, Animal Crossing has been fairly constant. I'm very pleased to say that my turnip investment from last week paid off oh, big time. I can't believe how much you made. <laughs> I know. I, like, it's I've obscene. got a midweek price of about 450-something per turnip, and my 7 million bell investment turned into 30 million bells, so just, I'm obviously ugh, set for life. Disgusting. Not even harvesting <laughs> my fruit from my trees anymore. It, they're just, oh, don't need them, don't need them. One of the biggest surprises I've had this week, though, was checking out Forza Horizon 4 on my Xbox One that I'm borrowing. Mm. I saw it was on Xbox Game Pass, and I thought, that looks lovely. I know it's meant to be... It's a bit of a different experience to the, the standard Forza Motorsports games. It's obviously, like, open world and a bit more sort of... Yeah, well, just open. And, oh, it's just... It's, it's lovely. It's lovely. And, I mean, surprising that a game that is i mean literally dripping in capitalism if it, it feels very liberating and freeing i do get a little bit hesitant about sort of going back into it because i think oh god i'm just going to be confronted by all the premium cars and drivers and skins and things that i don't have and feel that sort of pressure but once i do start it's yeah, it's it's lovely it's it's really nice being able to sort of drive anywhere drive however i like and it's extra nice that it's set in britain so it's given me that sense of escapism that I can't get at the moment, obviously during lockdown. But the way they've recreated the style of British roads and just seeing British road signs and little villages and things, oh, it's 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 lovely. So yeah, I've been I've been really enjoying that. I think those games I've I've not played since uh, Horizon Two when I when I used to have an yeah. Xbox One, but they they capture a sense of like location in a similar way to how Euro Truck did when I was playing that a lot. Yes, in that it's yeah. it's much different. You're driving fast, you're you're racing and everything else, but just the sensation of being like I've moved from a town to town. Yeah, they picked that up really well and and much better than. Did you ever play the crew? That was another big open world driving game. No, the idea in that was that you were essentially driving across the entire of the America, like the whole of the United States, in like a truncated version. Yeah. But it just it didn't ever feel like you were anywhere for for being everywhere. It felt like nowhere. <laughs> yeah, and I think Horizon, the whole series, does it much better because it's still contained enough mm. that it's like you know this is this town and and this city sort of thing, as opposed to being this is every place in the universe and, and they <laughs> yeah. build it up in such a way that it feels very real it feels very tangible yeah oh it's, it's lovely and i mean i've said before that i'm not never been a huge sort of fan of, of, of racing games or driving games but yeah it's, it's, it's been lovely and well in fact i've actually been playing another driving game which is lonely mountain downhill on the switch Ooh. which is a mountain biking game yeah tell us about that oh my goodness, it is such a gorgeous experience. It is, I mean, it feels actually quite similar to Forza in, in, in a way, actually, because it's about, it's about the joy of driving and of being outside among nature. And certainly with Lonely Mountain, it's about the the tranquility that sort of comes with, with solitude. It's got this, I mean, this beautiful sort of tilt-shifted art style. The environments are just stylized to perfection. There's a wonderful variety. I've only unlocked two of the mountains out of, I think, there's I think there's four or five, but they are so different from each other. And also within the mountains, there's four or five different routes 
which are nice and different as, as well and, and it just oh, it looks fantastic there's also there's no music in the game so the sound design is oh it's stunning like just hearing the sounds of nature and like the streams and like, the birds and the wind and then the way your wheels are sort of cascading down a mountain sort of taking some turns and sending some rubble flying or whatever i mean even when you just like totally derail and crash into a tree and blood spills everywhere it's, it's, it sounds lovely <laughs> but it's it's such a, a oh it's a sumptuous experience i i can't can't recommend it highly enough it is yeah very very well made it looks gorgeous and it's very therapeutic to play as well so yeah i'd certainly certainly urge people to check it out it looks very nice yeah mm. looks lovely mm. obviously mentioned at the top of the episode that i've been playing streets of rage 4 it's so good. It really is very, very good. <laughs> I was quite overwhelmed at the when I first picked it up, and I found it very, very hard. But certainly playing through it with you, Chris, was enough for me to get a bit more of an experience yeah. of how to approach certain certain things. And we we attempted doing the entire game on normal in co op. And we got all the way to the final boss. We did, and we failed at the final hurdle. Nothing to sniff at. Yes, but also <laughs> it's a it's a ruddy tough game i mean yeah it is i finally finished it on easy and i've really been sort of honing my skills playing as blaze yeah i feel like i've I've got a handle on on how to tackle pretty much you know all of the enemies and 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 all of the stages so i'm gonna i'm gonna have a go at normal on solo next and i reckon i reckon i'll be able to i'll be able to get there i think you will but i had a fantastic time playing through it and in co-op with you and as i said it's it's on our it's on our youtube channel so so please do please do check that out if if nothing else other than to see my little dog scuttling about in the background and and snoring very loudly if if you can hear it which is which is quite cute and some dreadfully inane and silly commentary from us where we for about half an hour we spoke fluently in alan partridge quotes but um, (laughs) (laughs) but yes check that out and, and and do feel free to give us any ideas of what you might like to see any of us play through next Chris, what have you been playing this week? Well, Streets of Rage, obviously, like you just mentioned. I, I have to say a thank mm. you to my brother for sending me the digital credit to buy it because I was whinging so much about having to wait for the physical edition. <laughs> but it, it's been yeah. so worthwhile. As a lesson for your kids, whinge <laughs> and you'll get what you want. <laughs> it, it's been fantastic. Like I, when we played it through, I think this discussion is probably on the video, but I said how when like Sonic Mania came out, it was like a, a return to classic Sonic, but through the eyes of fans who actually understood what was good about that. Yeah. And Streets of Rage obviously hasn't had hundreds of spin-offs and, and projects and things like that like Sonic has. But I was always worried that a new game was not going to capture the feel of the original three. And and I think this game does. Like it looks different. It feels slightly quicker, but in essence, it feels like a proper Streets of Rage game. Yeah. Right down to kind of like stylistic choices to do with the music and, and to do with kind of the, the aesthetic and the look of the whole thing. It's really good. And and it manages to kind of like iterate on what the originals were. Yeah. To, to make it feel modern while still being like obviously a very classic genre that we don't see that much of anymore. So I've, I've loved that particularly. I've also been playing through, um, I've, I've had my PlayStation VR set up for the last couple of weeks, just having a bit more space and time around the house. And I finally played the Wipeout Omega Collection oh yeah and fucking hell <laughs> like th- th- this is a game like as, as a series i've tried to get into wipeout lots of times before like i had the original game on the saturn yeah uh, i had one of the versions on the ps2 the psp the vita like i've tried it lots of times and i've always kind of bounced off it for some reason i don't know what it is it just never feels quite right a bit too floaty and and whereas something like f-zero that i quite like as a series is still like a, a hover racer it feels a bit more weighty and I always felt like more in control of what I was doing in F-Zero games. But 
the Omega Collection, like I, I did play it when it first came out and it wasn't VR compatible and thought, you know, it's shiny, it looks nice, it's decent, I might play it a bit. But I put off playing it when it had its VR patch for months until picking it up the last few days. Yeah. And I, I've seriously been missing out, <laughs> like really, really seriously. Mm. I, I think this is one of these games where VR totally recontextualizes the whole thing. Yeah. And, and suddenly, like you, the sensation of speed is so far beyond what you can have in just like a flat screen experience. Yeah. It's like an actual roller coaster. It, it really does feel like a roller coaster. And when you first start, it puts on a lot of um, like comfort options yeah. to try and make it a bit easier for those who are not you know that confident in VR. And because I've played quite a bit, I turned all of those off. I was like, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. <laughs> and, and the one that really gets you, which is it, what makes the experience eventually, but at first was like, whoa, my head <laughs> was... Um, you, you can decide whether or not the view is locked to the whole cockpit so in, it's more stable or to your like pilot separately. Yeah. And because you're like slamming around corners at, at high velocity and, and high G and everything like that, there's times when your craft is moving in such a way that your head is, is not where the craft is. And, yeah. and you need to get used to kind of like really leaning into corners properly with your body to make it so you can see like the apex, the, the turn when you come out of it. Amazing. It's brilliant. It is really, really fantastic. And it's one of these experiences like Res where I can't see me ever playing a 2D Wipeout game again. Yeah. Because the the difference is just night and day from being a series that I was like, ah, you know, it's shiny, it's fine, to being something now that I, I played again for a couple hours today and came out of it feeling like I was in space. <laughs> like it's, 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 it's amazing. So I'd, I'd yeah. highly, highly recommend it. So yeah, the Wipeout collection is, is great. It is very, very good. I'm very tempted to get my VR stuff set up again so I can so I can revisit some of these things. There's some good games. I think the, the PlayStation VR, is, as much as it might be that some experiences are still better on the PC and, and some titles are still exclusive to, to other like home computer platform type things like the Oculus stuff, mm. there's a whole library now on PlayStation VR that you can't play anywhere else. Yeah. And for whatever limitations it does have, I'd say there's probably like at least 10, 15 essential games now yeah. that you can play nowhere else. And, and for me, that's enough to justify the cost of the whole thing yeah i think the, the certainly the software support and just the ease of use is mm. is fantastic it's it's very very accessible but having said that i now that i know that half-life alex exists <laughs> as a vr game yeah I, i'm just yeah i've been thinking about the best way to get a vr set up for for my computer so i can so i can play that and then i think that might supersede the PSVR. We shall see. We shall see. Yeah, that's fair enough. For now, though, shall we see what our 39th favourite video games of all time are? 39. 30s. 39. Starting this week, we have Minty. Minty Booth. Oh. Minty Booth. Friendly neighbourhood Minty Booth. <laughs> it's me. Here we go. <laughs> Minty, can you please tell us what your 39th favourite video game of all time is? I'd love to. Thanks for asking. You're welcome. My number 39 is an enormous RPG. It's so big, in fact, that I don't think I've been able to sit down and complete it 100% like I have with a fair few others of the genre. I put that down to its size, obviously, and mostly because I just don't want to, to be honest. I like to pick it up every few months, start a new game, sink in a few hundred hours just fucking around and doing whatever I want. Maybe I'll find something new, complete a quest I've never seen or gave up on last time because it's another fetch quest. Great. <laughs> it's open world as, you know, all things are these days. There's a world-ending threat as ever, but there's also logs to be chopped, armour to be forged, <laughs> Nern route to be pulled, and caves to be explored <laughs> in the Elder Scrolls V Skyrim. Skyrim. Wonderful stuff. What, what is there to say about this game that we don't already know or hasn't already been said, even if you haven't played it? 
you're, you're a nameless condemned prisoner, absolutely pissing with destiny that embarks <laughs> on a quest of self-discovery through towns, caves, fields, tombs, caves, mountains and tombs as you discover <laughs> what it means to be the Dragonborn and the part you play in vanquishing the firstborn of Akatosh, the world-eater Alduin. It's not just a quest to save the world, though. There's all kinds of side quests and factions to join, thieves and assassins guilds to restore to their former glory, a civil war to fight in, the godly Daedric princes to deal with, houses to build, vampires to destroy, werewolves to save? And did I mention a ton of caves and tombs to explore? Absolutely <laughs> packed with stuff to do and places to see. Dangerously so, I think. Time just ebbs away. Days melt off the calendar with the same speed that your CV fills up with accolades. <laughs> the listener of the Dark Brotherhood, the Archmage of the College of Winterhold, the head of the Thieves' Guild, Nocturnal's Nightingale, Thane of the Nine Holds, the list just goes on and on and on. It's pure adventure, and I just love switching off and just going for it. In an interesting reversal of how I used to play games as a kid versus how I play them now, I used to enjoy playing through legitimately and sort of really earning my status as Skyrim's champion, but now I just pretty much glitch my way to being invincible within the first half an hour and set about grinding everybody I come across into paste with great impunity. I'm due another playthrough soon, and I think I'm going to try doing a magic-only run this time, since I pretty much always default to being a stealth archer, as I'm sure pretty much everybody else who plays the game does. I've never done it like that. Oh, really? Yeah, but then I am a maverick renegade. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. We can't talk about a Bethesda game without acknowledging the, uh, the sheer wonder we felt when we first saw a horse float away into the sky <laughs> or when we used the lumber mill in Riverwood to launch corpses all the way to Whiterun. You take the rough with the smooth and the bugs with the features. I watch a lot of content creators on YouTube and the like who like get really deep into game mechanics, glitch hunting, exploits, and for this game particularly, uh, the very deep lore. Oh, so deep. People have been putting out hundreds and hundreds of videos about the little things you might have missed, the backstories of minor characters that actually have a lot more to them than what you see on a normal playthrough, and strange semi-hidden quests and random encounters. It's a game that never really gets old or seems to end, and one of the few that just seems to proliferate as time goes on. I'll probably buy a PS5 just to play the next one. Yes. But yeah, until yes. then, I'll just keep playing through this every few months until I die. <laughs> <laughs> it's just an infinite game, isn't it? I mean, it, it actually is, because there, is there is programming in there to just generate side quests forever. Really? Based on like a, some, some set formulae. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is literally no end point. Mm -hmm. there's, never, there's never a point where everyone says, thanks a lot, you've won. <laughs> Nope, nope. <laughs> I mean, you get the credits after you defeat Alduin, but what's saving the world when there's another jeweled candlestick to steal from somebody's house, that another quest to go on, another mark to kill in the Dark Brotherhood, another journey to go on, another friend to make along the way? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I just saw a little announcement today saying that Bethesda reckon it's going to be years until the next update on Elder Scrolls 6 will come. <laughs> so unfortunately, we've got a bit of bit of time to wait. But I mean, Skyrim, I've I've played through it a couple times, and it it just doesn't it doesn't age really. It was sort of like the experience I had with Fallout 3 when Fallout 4 came out was I was like I didn't need didn't need another one didn't need it yeah and i think that's probably what they're waiting for with elder scrolls 6 is to go well we need to justify why we're doing another one because i, I mean i thought that elder scrolls 4 oblivion 
couldn't be topped. I was like, no, that's that's absolutely as good as it gets. Like, there's no, but then dragons, and you know, it entirely <laughs> justifies yeah, it yeah. <laughs> with that alone. And you know, a whole other. I mean, it's it's incredible. Skyrim, absolutely incredible. Where did you go from here? My whole experience of Skyrim, I watched it in fits and starts when an ex-partner played 150 hours of it. So I've seen bits of the whole game <laughs> from, from different areas. And then for, for me personally, I played the first hour or two in VR. Oh yeah, that's about all you can stomach. Yeah, and it, you know, it, it works. The, the game is there and everything else. But at that point, it was like I was comfortable enough with using the move controllers to get around and everything on the PlayStation VR. But I still thought... I'm not doing this for 150 hours. No. Like, th- there's no way I'm playing this for 150 hours because it's too much. <laughs> it's just too much. Yeah. I mean, the game isn't a, isn't made to be a VR game. You know, you look yeah. at something the way that Su- Superhot was made as a VR game, it, they made yeah. it as a totally separate thing because it's like, well, how do we make that experience that we love in the console work for VR? It's by making something totally new, but, you know, with yeah. the same DNA. And I'd, lo- I'd love to see what Bethesda do with, with, uh, with like an open world VR experience. I mean, you look at, say, like Resident Evil 7, like that had to make quite a departure from the series. I mean, it's a good thing anyway, because the series was getting a bit stale anyway. Yeah. But in order to make those games work in VR, they had to try something totally new. And, uh, and you know, from, from my traumatising experience with it, uh, it works. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so maybe maybe they're, they're sort of got that in their minds right right from the um right from the start with the development of, of elder scrolls 6 but um i mean i can't wait to see what they do next and, and like i said how how they justify doing another one and i think i think they will i think it'll be mummies next big old mummies maybe mm. big old mummies a mummy the size of a town a town that's a mummy yeah i'm gonna write that down actually <laughs> <laughs> Next, we have my game. Jonathan Dunn, Jonathan Dunn. Do you want to know what my 39th favourite video game is? I do. I do. Thanks for asking. Tell us, please. It's New Super Mario Brothers for the DS. Is it? Oh, wonderful. <laughs> yes. <That's> very quick. <laughs> Excellent. I'm not fucking about. <laughs> <laughs> New Super Mario Brothers for the DS. This game was a real eye-opener for me because it was actually the first proper 2D Mario game that I'd owned. Oh. And the reason for this is it was the first 2D Mario game in... 16 years since Super Mario World on the SNES. Yeah. Now, mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I'd had Super Mario Advance on my Game Boy Advance, which was a port of the Super Mario All-Stars remaster of the Western release of Super Mario Bros. 2, which was actually not really a Mario game at all and didn't play like one, so I don't count it. <laughs> well... Fair enough. But I remember I had lusted hungrily after Super Mario All-Stars on the SNES. I, I love that there were like four games in one package. I love the sprite art. I love the bright colours. And I mean, I was very well versed in the Sonic games, having been raised on Sega. And this this was the other pillar that, that I had sorely been missing. And so when the return to the classic series was announced, I was, I mean, I was really excited for it. It, it looked it looked fantastic. And even though I was looking forward to it, I must say I was still surprised at just how much fun I, I had with it. I'd obviously played bits of older Mario games in the past, and I mean, generally, I was, I was a bit overwhelmed with how hard some of the platforming got, how precise you needed to be with your movements, which are all elements that I've come to embrace in platform games now, to be honest. But New Super Mario Brothers controlled quite a bit differently to the older games. It was a bit floatier, which made movement feel a bit more forgiving. And all in all, it, it just felt a lot more modern. 
And part of this was aided by the fact that a lot of movement mechanics that were familiar to me from Super Mario 64 DS were now applicable here. So you could do like the, the triple jump, gaining successive height, and you could slide and jump off walls, you could use your ground pound, and I mean, I was quite used to having all these moves among my arsenal, so it, it fitted in very, very naturally to me, you know, in this game. But as with all new Mario games, there were some new power-ups and abilities, and obviously this was no different here. In fact, there there were three main new power-ups in the game in addition to these new movement mechanics that I mentioned. Nintendo led their marketing campaign with showing the supersized Mega Mushroom Mario. Big boy. Which was great fun. I mean, you could just run through a level, you crush blocks and warp pipes, all enemies. I mean, it's a shame that the Mega Mushroom didn't appear massively throughout. I mean, to be honest, just the game, but also the rest of the sort of New Super Mario Brothers series. But, I mean, essentially, it's... A stupidly overpowered gimmick that only really had one use which was to destroy everything in its path which basically forgoes the importance of, of any sort of platform or puzzle design in that section so i think you know using it sparingly was, was was probably the right way to go even though it was a lot of fun the mini mushroom on the other hand which is it's it's opposite small boy the, yeah tiny little <laughs> lad you got <laughs> this word i mean Oh, it, was, it was it was great. It was really really fun. You got significantly more floaty with this, and it was it was great fun to essentially sort of basically like fly around the stage while sort of possessing the weight of a feather. But it, it did mean that you were incredibly vulnerable. Obviously, like one hit from anything, and you were absolutely dead plumber. And there were some really cool little bonus areas you could reach only as Mini Mario. And most importantly, two of the actual worlds had to be accessed as Mini Mario. And there'd be like a tiny little warp pipe hidden in the previous world that you'd have to get to whilst in mini form to then unlock the worlds. And that was really good fun. It meant that you had to obviously sustain that ability for, for quite some time in order to, to get to the warp pipe. And, and that was really good. And yeah, it was, a, it was a nice use of the power up. It was, you know, made it feel essential rather than just, you know, fun, uh, which is which is also fun. The other new power-up was the blue Cooper shell, which was... Yeah. I, I absolutely loved it. <laughs> and I'd, I'd sort of forgotten about it a bit, because mainly because it hasn't been used in a Mario game since. I mean, it's not in Mario Maker as well, which is which is a shame, because it was oh, it was fantastic. You could basically, like, you could tuck yourself up inside it to, like, protect you, and then you could, like, fling yourself about, allowing you to control yourself like, like you were throwing a Cooper shell. And, ah, oh, it was just... Yeah, it was great. It meant you could sort of blast through levels really fast, and it also helped you swim better as well. So it was just like a, a good all-round power-up. And yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame that it hasn't hasn't appeared in a game since. And I think it's, it's long overdue. Come on, Mario Maker hasn't got enough stuff in it. So please give us one more thing. <laughs> that is obviously a joke. For the game is stuffed, charitably bloated with content, stuffed to the gills. They'd also tweaked the mechanics of the superstar. Because in games before, like you were just you'd be invincible, but in this, you when you were invincible, you also ran a lot faster. When you jumped, you did like a little forward flip in the air, which was great, and it you sort of had a much stronger momentum. And like for the first time, I really sort of felt you know powered up, not just invincible. Because I mean, I always felt that in the older games, when you got a superstar. I actually felt more vulnerable because I didn't know exactly when the power was going to run out. That's a good point, actually. You know, it could happen any second, and I always felt quite tense. But here, I felt like you could truly like embrace the power and just charge through that absolute run of little twats. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I mean, it's a lovely-looking game, and I, I don't think enough credit is given to it because it 
basically defined the style of 2D Mario games, which is still being used now. It was the first one to create that modern style with like 3D models for the characters and lovely, obviously bright colors and nice rounded backgrounds. And yeah, it, it looked lovely. And it, I mean, it looked fantastic on the DS. And uh, and yeah, but there's, you know, credit for the style in itself, because obviously, like I said, it's still being used today. And obviously it's a whole theme in Mario Maker as well. And it holds up, it's fantastic. One of the other things that the game added in was Star Coins, which has now become a staple of the series as well. And these added great replay value to the game. So in every level, there'd be three star coins, which were like big golden coins, but they'd be hidden. Well, you needed to find them all. And if you got them all, then you'd unlock some more levels later on. And one of the things that made it fun to look for them was the fact that, I mean, it was quite a simple design thing, really, but you'd have a little blank, three blank spaces at the top of your screen. And if you got a coin, it would go into its relevant space. So you would know if you're missing a coin, whether or not it was earlier or later in the level to the one that you just found. And that was just, it was a very, very gentle nudge in the right direction that made sure it wasn't too frustrating. You didn't feel overwhelmed by thinking, oh God, it could be anywhere. You knew roughly where it was and that sort of helped hone in on your quest to find it. And that was just nice, just nice. Now, Nintendo didn't need to add in any extra content, but for some reason, they put in some of the mini-games from Super Mario 64 DS, which just didn't need to be there, but they were. And then for a bit of a bonus, there was also like a Mario vs. Luigi racing two-player mode in there, which I'd totally forgotten about until I was watching some videos of this the other day. And I, I, to be honest, I don't think I ever actually tried it out. It, it looked sort of reminiscent of... Do you remember the, the two-player split-screen racing stuff that was in Sonic? Yes, yeah. Which I did really enjoy. It looked, looked a bit like that. I don't, I don't know if the mode came back in New Super Mario Brothers Wii or... I don't think it was in the Wii U one either. I don't recall, actually. I'm not sure. But in classic Jonathan Dunn style, once I'd 100% of the game, obviously I had no problem in starting a new save file, doing it all over again, <laughs> all three save spots, <laughs> because I'm cool. It was just incredibly fun to play. Yeah. That's my catchphrase, I think. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know why New Super Mario Bros. 2 wasn't as good as all of the great elements were there. Some cool new power-ups. It looked shinier on the 3DS. I remember, actually, it was the first full game that was available to download digitally, and I so I enjoyed being able to do that. But I guess the novelty of having a brand new 2D Mario game was diluted a bit by this point. I mean, it's still a great game, but just not as inherently fun and addictive as, as the first one, I think. Now, I missed New Super Mario Bros. Wii because I only had a Wii for a couple of months, but I did end up getting New Super Mario Bros. U and Super Luigi U for the Wii U. I should say U more. <laughs> mm. They're good games. Yeah, really, really good. I remember I got them because I'd, I'd sort of got a bit fed up of trudging through the absolute bile that was flooding the Super Mario Maker servers at that time. <laughs> and I was sort of just gagging for a, a normal Mario experience. Yeah. <laughs> and those games on the Wii U were, yeah, absolutely outstanding. Uh, you touched on this the other day when you were talking about Super Mario Maker, Chris, that it's surprisingly hard to design a Mario level in it an is. authentically Mario way. It is. And so getting a whole two games worth of proper Mario levels was, I mean, it was a wonderful palette cleanser and, and I think genuinely improved like my design skills when I returned to Mario Maker after that. And Super Luigi U was, at first when it was released, I thought it was just like a, I don't know, like a bit of DLC, but it, I mean, it's much more than that. It's much more than just like an add-on. It was, it really was like the Lost Levels equivalent for New yeah. Super Mario Brothers U and it, it was hard as nails, really unforgiving, but but very, very good. I haven't re-bought it on the Switch with the, the Deluxe Edition, but I mean, maybe 
when I get a bit fed up with Mario Maker 2, you know, I might dip into that and, and replay it to sort of give myself that experience again. Because, yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic, fantastic series. And I'm really hoping that they <laughs> release a new Super Mario Brothers All-Stars with remastered versions of the originals, uh, the second one and the Wii version as well. And with all the rumours surrounding like, Mario's 35th anniversary stuff that's coming later this year, could be a possibility. I think it's a real possibility that that could, that could come out. Like I said, it's a fantastic series. All the games I've played have been absolute bangers and I've loved all of them. But the original is... My 39th favourite video game of all time. They're really good. Yeah. I remember when it came out on the DS, there was people who were really excited that it was the first 2D Mario game for, for like you said, was it 16 years? Yeah. But then there were people who were really down on that, that it's like, well, I've just played 64 DS, so I want more of this like freeform 3D stuff. And I think that was just missing the point. Yeah. And I think there's Mario in a weird way ties into sort of the gamer entitlement thing really mm-hmm. clearly, because things can come out and not be for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and people really struggle with that. Like we, we saw it when the, the Labo came out or the Labo kits. It's like, yeah, it wasn't for everyone. It, it's mainly meant for me, like family and kids and stuff like that. But it was a good idea that was executed really well, just not necessarily for everyone in the world. Yeah. And I think the new Super Mario series was, was the same principle. It was like, if you want 2D Mario, here are really solid 2D Mario games that you haven't seen for a while. Yeah. So yeah, they, they deserve credit for that, if nothing else, that, that it's kind of a a separate pillar of Mario, like within the same franchise, within the platform franchise. Yeah, it's something Minty said the other week, saying like it would have been really great to have had just another five or six years of, of 2D games being developed before everything had to be in 3D. Yeah. So it is really nice that Nintendo have obviously embraced developing the new Super Mario Brothers series within a series. And, you know, I, I hope that they continue to as well, because it's the best version of that formula Mm. that I think exists and uh, yeah long may it rain Mm. good I used to play the multiplayer a lot in college on my lunch breaks with my friends was that the the race like the the versus racing stuff yes yeah oh how was it so I know this is going to sound like a a humble brag but um, (laughs) I was too good at it and nobody wanted to play with me (laughs) oh yeah oh poor Minty yeah lastly we have Chris Hello. What is your 39th favourite video game of all time? Shock and horror, because last week I spoke about Nino Kuni, which is a Japanese RPG, and I'm not the RPG guy. And this week I'm talking about another JRPG. Ooh. <laughs> oh my. So two for two in two weeks. This is a game, as soon as I start talking about this, Jonathan will know what this is. And I, <laughs> I don't think Minty will have the same context, but just bear with me. Like I was obsessed with this game as a kid. And that was because the official Sega Saturn magazine (laughs) talked it up so, so heavily in in preview coverage before. And this is like an act of incredible gaming generosity that I'd never seen before as a child, giving away the entire first disc of what would be a four disc game as a cover treat. It's Panzer Dragoon Saga. Yes, it is. And it's it's amazing. So it's developed by a team called Team Andromeda. It was a weird role-playing sequel, like the third game in a series, which up to that point had just been dragon-based rail shooters, like essentially just arcade shooters. Now, the the demo disc situation is is the thing I want to start talking about because it was really odd, really, really strange at the time. Like last week, Minty, you you talked about how Bravely Default 2 
sort of approaches demos in a very different way by sort of knowingly addressing the audience to say we know this is not the game this is a demo so this is like a self-contained thing that you can play and enjoy yeah and the majority of demos just don't do that most demos will be like here's level three because that's quite a good starting point or, or here's like a, a racetrack you can do a, la- a lap of that's from halfway through the the first championship or whatever so it, it means that you often play games without like the the wider context of what the game is like the wider experience you're going to have and it's not always like the opening section so Panzer Dragoon Saga like I said in its retail form was was four discs and the Sega Saturn magazine's cover disc was the whole of the first disc there was nothing cut it was just we've pressed an extra set of these first discs here you go and it meant that when you finished it you could just continue your save straight into the second disc if you bought the full game and for me it got me so so hyped up to be able to play like this much of what would be a retail game it felt like I'd been given like a total freebie like back when you were a kid and you don't get games that often, I'd often like love getting demo discs to play those little five minute chunks. But this this was a disc that you can play for three, four, five hours, I think the first disc, depending on, on how much you do. Yeah. And not only that, like this was the, the first proper RPG I think I played on any format. So to think like, how big can this game possibly be? Like it just, it blew my mind as a child <laughs> because it was a genre I just did not know anything about really. I probably finished that disc maybe 10 times. Like eventually you can speed through it. And like I said, like two, three hours, maybe if if you're going for all of the collectibles that you can and things like that, it's about four or five, like I mentioned. But compared to like a regular demo, this this was huge. It was a game that, that had like full cutscenes. It had like this full story. It had stuff to kind of get really involved in. And yeah, it was it was just an unbelievable experience to have that much stuff on the front of a magazine that I got with the Beano each week. <laughs> <laughs> when the game came out properly, I did order a copy. So I, I, had, I had a copy back then when it was released uh, physically. I got to about the second disc. I remember getting towards the end of that, which is the Uru Ruins. Oh yeah. And for some reason, I just never got past it. Not that it was like super difficult, not that it was kind of like something that was going to take hours and hours of play. I just got stuck. I, I don't know what it was. And at the time, obviously, this was back in, I think, 1998. So I, I was a small child, as it were, that I just stopped and, and left it. And it was a game that I never finished as a kid. And it's been something that has haunted me like ever since. <laughs> this game that I hadn't finished, that I, I had this memory of that was so strong and vivid that I had never given the time to. So when, when we wrote this list, I still hadn't beaten it. Like we, we put these lists together of our favorite games and I um denied where to put this game and I thought, okay, 39, yeah, that seems about right and whatever. And I plonked it there until this year I finally played it through to completion. Wonderful. And I've, I've mentioned before how I've spent time sort of revamping my retro consoles so I can play them more readily on, on modern hardware and TVs. So my Saturn, I've got some nice RGB cables that makes it look really shiny. I've got my open source scanline converter that I got six months or so ago that, that again makes things look that much better on a big screen uh, and I've also got an SD card reader for it as opposed to a disk drive which means that finally I could play this game again because it runs a ridiculous amount of money on the the aftermarket now yeah it does <laughs> when I played it and beat it it was back in about February and I deliberately didn't tell either of you I was doing this because I didn't want to sort of give away where it was on the list <laughs> but it is so good and 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 this isn't nostalgia me talking now like when i did the list i was thinking yeah i remember really enjoying that when i was 10 11 this is me as a as a 33 year old man who has played games for you know almost three decades now and it's an experience that i think is totally unparalleled like to all the other games i've played and all the other games on this list and the more i think about it now with with this actual 
modern understanding of it 39 is so low so so miserably low (laughs) and unfortunately obviously that's my cross to bear that was the rules of the list i couldn't shift it around or move it but i just know that for the next quite a few weeks i'm going to be going 38 yeah 37 36 just climbing up and thinking every time Panzerdragoon Saga should be higher than this. And I'm, I'm gutted because it is an absolute masterpiece. Yeah. Like playing it now, it's, it's 2020. If anyone listens to this in the future, it is the year 2020, the year of our Lord. Mm. It looks and sounds incredible. <laughs> it, it looks and sounds so good. And like there's the usual kind of low polygon issues and texture warping issues that were just native to the Saturn and the PlayStation at the time. But this is by far the most visually impressive Saturn game on the console, hands down. I don't think oh, anything yeah. else comes close. Oh, yeah. And, and Team Andromeda managed to render like areas and enemies at a level that I didn't think the Saturn was capable of. Obviously, I wasn't thinking about that when I was 10 or 11. But looking back at it now and understanding the hardware and understanding its contemporaries and everything else that was going on, there's nothing that looks this good. The art style itself is it's quite hard to describe. It's, it's maybe reminiscent of sort of like how steampunk is meant to be a hybrid of, of kind of design ideals. But it doesn't have any of the sort of like twee Victorian obsessed bullshit that comes with steampunk. (laughs) So instead, it sort of takes the elements of the game's own lore and backstory. And it has like an ancient mythos, which which drives the whole world. And in part, I think some some of the design obviously comes down to the technical shortcomings of the system. But in practice, it means that all all the kind of monsters and, and all the sort of industrial creations in this world are like horrible lumbering mobs. And it's such like a weird angular world, which feels like it is in actual development, which is essentially what is happening in the story. Yeah. It's something which is building, they're kind of at the beginning of like the technology age, that it it just complements it so, so well. I just think it's a perfect example of when the technical shortcomings actually made it a better experience overall. Similar to maybe how like the original Silent Hill on the PlayStation, the fog was because you couldn't render big scenes on the PS1. And then it became something that was just part of that experience. So it, it does work out sometimes. When I played through it, I was just really taken aback at how believable the whole place was. And, you know, it has this lore, it has this backstory. It has something that up to this point in the first two games was just set dressing to say like, okay, you're on a dragon, you you shoot things. And then suddenly here they were fleshing it out to like a 15, 20 hour game. And it didn't feel like a big sort of tonal shift. It was just like, yep, I, I buy that. I, I understand that. I can see where that's come from. Uh, it was, it's just really believable. Nothing twee, nothing, nothing overwrought, just really, really good. The music, I'm sure Jonathan will remember, is absolutely first class. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it, it mixes like orchestral composition with, with world music, using kind of like percussion and instrumentation to sort of suggest this. It's like not a particular place, but it uses obviously like the language of music that we understand from kind of other nations around the world to give it a very specific sense of kind of like otherness and, and place within that. Recently, like in the last couple of years, the, the original composer Sayori Kobayashi basically like revisited and reorchestrated the whole soundtrack. Yeah, and and it is something else. It is absolutely marvelous. I'd, I'd implore anyone to check that out. It's extraordinary. Yeah, the voice work throughout the whole game is top class. The localization for the writing is really good. Like it's, it's a game that launched at the end of the Saturn's life at a time when the console was basically dead in the water. Sega were kind of gearing up for the Dreamcast, and yet they poured so much love into this game that had like a miserably low print run and would have been played by nowhere near enough people. And it, it just is like such a labor of love. It, it's such a wonderful project to, to play through and think about the story itself. I'm not going to spoil too much because I really want people to play it if they've never 
seen it or at least like look up and see see what it looks like and how it moves along it's a story about revenge most simply to begin with like your your character edge is hired by the empire as a mercenary to protect like a dig site which is excavating sort of mysterious materials of the ancients like the sort of previous race that has died out in this world but he's soon attacked and double crossed and it sort of moves along that he then bonds with one of the dragons that the series is most famous for and then sets off to sort of basically confront his attackers but even by the end of the first disc, you've got sort of twists and turns and, and subplots that centre on things as heavy as divine purpose that are about things like your place between sort of corrupting influence of political control and capitalist greed and exploited faith. The game didn't need this level of consideration for the time it was released in. And yet here we are. Like I, I was totally enthralled for the entire time I played this this year, just genuinely gripping like one area that I really, really loved that I remember hating as a kid because obviously I'm approaching this from a very different mindset now was the the main town of Zoa. When I play it now, like it, it exhibits this tangible split between it having like a liberal sort of trading district as well as a holy district. And it honestly felt like when I was walking around it, I was thinking of how in the film There Will Be Blood, there's a basic schism between capitalism versus like just blind devotionism. And the writers do such a good job in, obviously, the film, because it's amazing, but in, in Pan's Dragoon Saga, at just like setting up the idea that these extremes can be equally damaging. There's, there's danger in both. And again, this is all in just like a little town that you spend a bit of time in, in the middle of a game. The gameplay itself as well, like I haven't even talked about what it plays like. It translates the idea of a rail shooter that all the previous games were action games into an RPG brilliantly. Like it, it doesn't feel weird to make that shift. And the hallmarks, the originals are still there in kind of the combat where you use either single shots or lock-ons or, or the berserk sort of power-ups. And the original games being famous for sort of 360 degree aerial battles, that's here too. So you're you're managing the space around your dragon as you fight and you, and you fly along. And, and basic traversal as well, like between towns when you're on the dragon, still carries the same sort of sense of like it being an alien place that you are flying through. Uh, so it, it just, it feels like a natural progression of the series. We've talked about this a few times. Like very few games are able to shift genre in this way that is successful. Like we've mentioned things like Zelda when it was reworked as Hyrule Warriors was really good. The Steam World series is constantly reinventing itself. That I know you love Jonathan, but Saga made like that leap from an action game to a role playing game before any of these examples, and did it without even breaking a sweat. Like it, it was just like there you go. I will just pump out a brilliant RPG. No worries. It's outstanding. The game is available on nothing these days. <laughs> like the, the harshest thing, the harshest truth about the whole project is this. Sega have basically admitted losing the source code. So straight ports are not going to happen. Even remakes are quite unlikely unless people are going to reverse engineer the original code. And and due to that aforementioned low print run, like I said, it costs about 250 quid for a copy these days if you want a legit disc boxed version. But don't pay that. Seriously, don't, no one needs to pay that. But please go out and find a way of emulating it and playing it. Because I, I honestly think it's for me having a, a lower kind of experience of this genre it stands up as one of the very best rpgs i've played certainly one of the best kind of from the 32-bit generation and tragically i think it's one that will always be overshadowed by the final fantasy series on the playstation because that was happening at the same time and that was the rpg console the saturn just wasn't known for this sort of experience so playing it through this year just absolutely astonishing and i am very upset that this game in my list will not rank in sort of like I don't know, the mid-teens up there. It's so, so good. Well, <laughs> what can we say? Well, what can I say? I mean, 
makes my heart do little somersaults when I hear people talking about Panzer Dragoon Saga yeah. and that was wonderful to hear you talking talking through it and, and, and to be honest I've had a very similar experience with it in the fact that I had the demo disc yeah. before then I remember my Danish grandfather as a gift to me and my brother Alex said he'd, he'd buy us a Sega Saturn game each yeah. and this was right at the end of the Sega Saturn's run and Alex asked for Panzer Dragoon Saga and I got the, the other four discs game that was released at similar sort of time which was Riven, the sequel to Mist <laughs> The name of that game makes me laugh so much, I know it's a good game I just think the name is really funny I What, don't... the fact that it's called the sequel <laughs> to Mist? Yeah, I think so, because they just said like okay, we'll call it a completely different name it's not connected to the the original at all. Yeah, and then we're like, actually, <laughs> I think we need to rethink this. <laughs> is it actually called Riven the Sequel to Mist? Yes. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, honestly. Mm. What? But uh, yeah, so whilst I was playing through that, I was experiencing Pantragoon Saga mainly by watching Alex play it. And I'm so glad that we had the demo disc because the first disc of our actual edition got scratched and was, oh. wasn't playable. <laughs> but the, the demo disc worked perfectly in its place. Unfortunately, it does mean that my copy that I've still got isn't worth anywhere near as much as uh, the like the £250 uh, yeah. proper thing. Yeah, so that's my post-apocalyptic kingmaker <laughs> stash shot of it. When you're bartering for mm. baked beans. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't play it as much as my brother played it. I don't think I got to the end of it playing it myself. Most of the stuff in the game went totally over my head yeah. as it did with you because I was a child yeah, and so you know, I didn't care about things like that. I remember being absolutely overwhelmed by the depth of its lore and the, the sheer just size of the game and I remember Alex telling me being like, there's just loads of books you can read that are just books <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's something we wouldn't see again until like until like Skyrim yeah. or like Oblivion and stuff like that. My only comfort is the fact that it hasn't appeared in my list yet and I'm, I've got time I've got time to do what you did and play through it again uh, before then because yeah it truly is a masterpiece I'm so glad that you've had the the opportunity to to play it and um oh I'm yeah I'm gonna that's that's what I'm gonna do this evening yeah it's brilliant Ooh-wee. what a fantastic trio of games we've had this week First of all, we had the Elder Scrolls V Skyrim. Before New Super Mario Brothers, the old, the original, old, the first new, <laughs> when it was new, <laughs> on the DS. Before finally, Panzer Dragoon Saga, a game that I've placed probably 20 places too low on this list. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode, or if you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please do like, subscribe, share the podcast on social media, tell your friends. You can reach out to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash hour three cents. Chat to us there, tell us about your favourite games, challenge us on our opinions. You can ask us questions you might like us to answer in future episodes, or you can reach out to us individually. You can find me on Twitter, at Jonathan you can find me at Chaz underscore Hodges. And I'm Clement underscore Boo. And please do check out our YouTube channel. If you search for our three cents, subscribe to our channel there, please, because we've got some fantastic video content that we're putting up all the time. And as we've mentioned in this episode, you can see the playthrough of Streets of Rage 4 that me and Chris did earlier in the week. And we're adding stuff all the time. And if you're really, really enjoying what we're doing, then please do check out our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash our three cents. Pledge away and we shall reciprocate your support with some wonderful content. And please do join us next time for our 38th favourite video games of all time. Oh yeah! Lovely.
Hey there, this is Jeremy Parrish, and if you're a fan of classic video game soundtracks, or if you just love 20-minute rock epics about war-ready armadillos that battle Catholicism, you should listen to Alexander's Ragtime Band. Join the power trio of myself, Elliot Long, and James Eldred each month as we talk about the most pretentious music of all, progressive rock, right here on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Video Death Loop is a podcast where we watch a short video clip on loop until we just can't take it anymore. Along the way, we'll try our best to make each other laugh and to hold out longer than the other guy. You can jump in on any episode, no need to worry about continuity. Check out Video Death Loop on the Greenlit Podcast Network with new episodes every Friday.